A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there, and welcome back to our Bismarck series. This is episode 5 of an 8-part series, and if you haven't listened to the previous ones, you're probably not going to know what's happening. But just to bring you up to speed, we're talking about Bismarck, as is probably obvious. Bismarck, that is, but the lesser-known aspects of his life and career. So essentially, everything before 1864. At the moment, our story is up to late 1861, though. We haven't yet covered the period where Bismarck actually comes to power. That's what this episode is for. The story of how Bismarck actually came to be minister-president or prime minister of Prussia is a fascinating one, and I'd have to say it's probably up there with my most favourite stories about Bismarck, which is saying something because pretty much all aspects of the Bismarck story really does fascinate and interest me, and if you've heard me talk about Bismarck before, you'll know that it's often hard to make me stop. I hope you have been enjoying what we've been looking at so far. Judging by the feedback, this has been exactly what you guys have needed, so that's fantastic. And I've seen a lot of people join up and support the show as well on Patreon, even just for the $1 so you can access it all in one go. So that's nice too. That brings me to a handy reminder. If you'd like to access the next episodes and not have to wait the next few weeks, then make sure you head over to Patreon and sign up now. From any level at all, from $1, $2, etc, etc, you'll get all this stuff and more besides. In fact, just for signing up at the $1 level, you also get Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, which is a 10-part series looking at how the French military machine waged wars throughout the late 17th century. I know it has absolutely nothing to do with Otto von Bismarck, but just so you know, by signing up at the $1 level, you also get that. If you were to sign up at the $2 level though, you not only get all this Bismarck stuff to chow down on, you'd also get the Louis XIV Arms and Armies series, and for $2 patrons, you get the 12-part Jan Sobieski series as well. So yes, I'm throwing stuff at you. If you weren't aware, Jan Sobieski was the King of Poland in the latter portion of the 17th century. So again, nothing to do with Bismarck, but just so you're aware, by signing up on Patreon, you're getting so much more than just Bismarck, no matter what level you're on. I don't even need to talk about Poland is not yet lost, of course. That is all available, it's a completely exclusive series, and it's available at the $5 level. But there's other stuff available at the $5 level too. Simply look at what we've done in the 1956 series, where we looked at the Suez Crisis in particular, and you'll know that you're in for an awful lot of quality content if you do sign up at the $5 level. There's also a whole range of other benefits and perks to sign up at additional higher levels, so basically just have a look around if you're curious. If you're not curious at all and you're happy to wait and you want me to just shut up and get on with things, then cheers for your patience. And I really appreciate you listening to this 
and spreading the word about it. Let's recap our story a little bit just so that we're all on the same page. When we last left Bismarck, he was the Russian ambassador in late 1861 and he was having Christmas dinner with his family for what he could not have possibly known, but what turned out to be the last time he would do so before being minister-president. For the next 28 years of his life, Bismarck would be at the centre of the Prussian government, and then at the German government, and then at the centre of European diplomacy. But before he got there, he had to rise to the occasion. He had to be considered as the ideal candidate for the position of minister-president. And in order to get that far, what would he have to do? Well, he would have to take advantage of a crisis, a crisis which had been building for a very long time and which we touched on in the last episode. It's kind of boring in a way because it's to do with passing legislation, it's to do with military reform, and maybe you're not all that into that. But if you, like me, want to understand how Bismarck came to be, Bismarck as we know him, then the military reform malarkey is just important to kind of give some backstory. We're not going to get bogged down in it, but we are going to get bogged down in Bismarck the man. So let's get on with it. Let's go back to Otto and see how he's getting on in late 1861. Let's get into this. Ever since Bismarck's political career began, he had had something of a chip on his shoulder when it came to getting a post in the government. For the longest time, Bismarck imagined that he was one of the most ideal candidates for any particular position in the government of Prussia, simply because, as far as he understood it, he was on good terms with the Prussian king. From 1850 onwards, in fact, Bismarck seems to have been convinced of his own importance and believed that it was only a matter of time before the Prussian king and his own minister-president chose Bismarck to succeed. Bismarck wasn't sure what post he would get, but he was pretty certain that he would get one. Unfortunately for Bismarck, though, he was to be disappointed over and over again. Throughout the late 1850s and early 1860s, as we've seen, Bismarck pretty much missed out on all of those promotions that he had imagined he would receive. On the one hand, we might marvel at Bismarck's ambition and his singular mindedness when it comes to getting a promotion and reaching the top of the Prussian greasy pole. On the other hand, though, it's pretty easy to ask a pertinent question. Who exactly did Bismarck think he was to be given such a massive promotion when he was barely in politics for a decade? Bismarck was Bismarck, he would have told you, and he was well entitled to a promotion, even if you couldn't see it. Looking at the records now and looking at this story, it almost seems like Bismarck knew something that we didn't know. But certainly his contemporaries knew that there was something about Bismarck that was just different, that stood out. There was something dynamic and alluring about him, something that perhaps could be harnessed. This at least was the king's hope, and this hope would develop throughout the following months, to the point that in September 1862, Bismarck was appointed, and he did become the minister-president of Prussia. All that's to come, of course, but before we reach that point, we have to explain how it happened. How Bismarck, at long last, reached the halls of power. Let's examine how this happened. Since 1859, the story for King Wilhelm had been one of opposition, of resistance, of trying his very best to leverage his royal authority and get those military reforms that he wanted. Standing in the way of this vision was the Landtag. The Landtag was virtually stuffed with liberal deputies, and none of these liberal deputies were particularly fond of the idea of giving more powers to the Prussian army, or of empowering the Prussian king, potentially, to crush them and to crush their parliament. 
There was certainly a lack of trust in the air in late 1861-62, but in the defence of those liberal deputies, the king hadn't exactly given them many reasons to be optimistic. Several times he'd closed the land tag, believing that it was better to dispense with those pleasantries than to humour those liberal deputies who refused to bow down and recognise the regal authority of the Prussian king. But Wilhelm could only stand on ceremony for so long. If he wanted to get the military reform bill passed, then he had several options. Many of these options were not particularly palatable, but Wilhelm insisted that he was willing to do whatever it took, even abdicate, if that was what it took to get the military reform bill passed. As Albrecht von Roon, the Minister for War and architect of this bill, looked on, he and his king did their utmost to try and find a way around the dilemma, and as we know, their deliberations and brainstorming would eventually lead to a scene which has since become famous. By late 1861, the king plainly had to make a difficult decision. Abdication was an option which should only be taken in the most severe of circumstances, but it was said to be on the cards. Bismarck would discover this himself many months later. But where was Bismarck by late 1861? Well, he was still in St. Petersburg. At this point, he was somewhat distant from the conflict going on between Crown and Parliament, but he was certainly not ignorant of it. In fact, Bismarck would have found himself pretty much unable to think about anything other than the looming succession in Prussia's government. It was obvious to Bismarck that Wilhelm was unhappy and that the king wasn't able to get what he wanted. And in these circumstances, Bismarck surely imagined that, in desperation, the king would turn to the one man who had established himself as something of a fixer when it came to problems. Could Bismarck fix the king's problems? Bismarck seemed to be in an ideal position to exploit Prussia's troubles to his own ends. The deadlock over the reform bill was an issue which was combined with the return of so many liberals, which meant that this deadlock would continue well into the foreseeable future. The king's younger party in Parliament had also been dwarfed and virtually eliminated, so genuine fears were now permeating among the king's circle, to the effect that, in a few years' time, the king and his party would no longer have control over the political soul of the nation. Wilhelm had only been crowned king officially in autumn of 1861, having been regent for a couple of years beforehand. There was no time for a true honeymoon period, though. As soon as he was crowned, and even before then, when he was struggling over the details about that coronation, he was facing into a miserable situation. It was very hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Neither the Landtag, nor his generals, nor the king himself could compromise, and they wouldn't compromise even if they were in a position to. Military reform, after the debacle of the failed mobilisation during the Franco-Austrian War, the act of reforming Prussia's military seemed to Wilhelm like a case of life or death for the Prussian kingdom. If those darned liberals couldn't see how important this was, Wilhelm wasn't going to let them away with it. He would fight to the end if necessary. But how to fix this chronic problem, this struggle between Parliament and Crown, when neither side were willing to give way? Well, Wilhelm and his advisers could see a few ways out of this problem. Some of these options were not particularly palatable, but Wilhelm insisted that he was willing to do whatever it took to get the reform bill passed. The first solution, which was the most obvious but also the most extreme, was to abdicate, or at least to threaten those liberal deputies with abdication if the king wasn't given what he wanted. 
This blustering and threatening that the king was going to leave his rightful office might have stunned the liberals into conceding the king's rights to do whatever the king believed was best. Another solution, which was also quite obvious and very familiar to Wilhelm, was to suspend the land tag, but it was hard to do this over and over again without probable cause, without being accused of some underhanded and unpalatable amount of disrespect for the newly established Prussian constitution. A third solution was simply to stick with this struggle, to try and endure the unendurable and bite his lip as these liberal deputies defied their rightful king. Playing the wait-and-see game didn't seem like a particularly attractive option for Wilhelm, but a fourth solution was to try another election, in the hope that the Liberals might suffer a reverse, and then more of the King's deputies would be present to pass the military reform bill. The fifth, most unpalatable solution was to appoint someone who might be able to fix this crisis for Wilhelm, and bring about these reforms and improvements which Wilhelm believed that his beloved army deserved, and in addition, desperately needed. This fifth option, let's call it option E, was considered only an extreme measure when all other options had failed. But Wilhelm showed from a relatively early stage that he was even keeping option E in mind when he made the decision in March 1862 to recall Bismarck from his Russian ambassadorship. This act must have sent the rumour mills into overdrive and Bismarck left his residence in the Russian capital and left behind another significant chapter of his life, with a sense that surely, after all those disappointments, his time to rise to the occasion and become minister-president was at last at hand. Bismarck was in a sense correct. His time had come, just not quite yet. The king continued to dither, to be indecisive, to mull over his different options, and to wait and see and hope that perhaps another election could return the results he desired. In other words, he was going through all of those aforementioned options at his disposal, and he would only revert to option E if he had no other choice. In the spring of 1862, Edwin von Manteuffel wrote to the Minister of War Albrecht von Roon, explaining precisely what he believed was at stake in all of this. And in the process, he captures a pretty important point for us, why he believed the military bill had become such a huge deal for the crown and country. Manteuffel wrote, I recognise no advances in the battle, except with weapons in hand, and we are in the midst of the battle. How can the three years' service be given up during his reign without bringing shame to the personal position of the all-highest? The army will not understand it, its confidence in the king will slacken, and the consequences for the internal condition of the army will be incalculable. We shall see bloody heads, and then good election results will come. Or, to translate for us, resist, Manteuffel seems to be saying. Resist and oppose all those darned liberals, and then a good election result would surely follow, while the country marvelled at the king's resilience. Very well, the king seemed to say to this. I've been opposed long enough. Let's host another election and see if you're right, Manteuffel. It was in this situation, what Steinberg calls an overheated atmosphere, that all eligible Prussians went to vote again on the 5th of May 1862. Once this step was taken, it became immediately obvious that the crisis was a lot more severe than either the king or Manteuffel had expected. By giving another election to these liberals, the king wasn't in fact drawing into his list of options. 
he was actually, to his horror as he later realised, empowering the Liberals all the more. Because once more, the Liberals won a thumping victory, and by the end of the count, the King realised that he only now had 11 deputies in the Landtag, who could now be considered unflinchingly loyal to him and his goals. Just to put it in perspective, 11 out of the 352 deputies in the Landtag were now undisputably on the King's side. The rest varied from wholly opposed to the reforms to not really thinking they were a good idea, but pretty much nobody other than these 11 men were seeing things the King's way. In short, Manteuffel's idea had been wrong. Giving the Liberals another election wasn't a good idea, and it had only made the situation far more worse. To Wilhelm, the situation now seemed so acute that he started to bring himself around to the idea of abdicating. He would have to abdicate, or, some people whispered, some people suggested, the king didn't have to abdicate. Instead, he would have to look at that list of options, go all the way down to the bottom where option E was, maybe take the padlock off that option, maybe carefully open that option up, and then think, really think, whether or not this Bismarck guy could give you what you wanted. Maybe it was time. Maybe it was time to appoint the one man who might be able to make a difference. The Gerlach brothers, Manteuffel and Albrecht von Roon strongly supported option E. Perhaps you are correct, we imagine the king saying. If it must be done, then it must be done. I will appoint Herr von Bismarck, but only if it is clear that there is literally no other choice. But so repugnant was this choice that the king still could not make it. Thus, the inner torment of King Wilhelm began. Would he appoint Bismarck as minister-president, thus handing Bismarck the keys to Prussia's government in the hope that that mad Junker would be able to fix what had been broken? Or would he try and find another solution, any solution which might get him what he wanted? This question consumed the king's attentions for the duration of summer 1862. Little else seemed to matter. Typically for Wilhelm, having made Bismarck wait and suffer in uncertainty before, the king saw little issue with dallying as he made a decision. But Bismarck, as we know, had been here before. He'd been through hell in 1860, having waited, based on the rumour mill, that he was being considered for office. He left, as we saw in the last episode, in June 1860, disappointed at the king's dithering and determined never to place himself in such a position again. But Bismarck found here in the spring of 1862, having been forced to return home from St. Petersburg, that the king was once again intending to put him through hell. Not through any sense of malice, really, just because the king was indecisive, and as the king, he didn't see any real issue in making his subjects wait. The very least Bismarck could do, Wilhelm would probably have said, would be to wait on my decision. Those dark clouds of 1860 were looming over Bismarck's head again, so he tried something new. He tried to embrace a brand new path. Never mind what the king wanted me to do, Bismarck seemed to suggest. I'm going to take it upon myself to find a new career, a new posting. And if the king really wants me, he can come and find me. Perhaps a job as ambassador in London or in Paris. All the while, Bismarck made sure to emphasise to anyone who would listen that he wasn't really looking for power. In February 1862, this was an easy lie, because only Albrecht von Roon and a handful of others knew exactly how all-consuming the mission had become to Bismarck to become minister-president. He wrote to his sister in February 1862 as though imitating a veteran 
aged statesman, even though he was only 46 at this point, you wouldn't know it from this letter. In the course of which, Bismarck even claimed that his recent illnesses had mellowed him out. In the course of this letter, Bismarck essentially shows us his political face. It's a face we've seen before, and it essentially meant that Bismarck did not tell the truth all the time. Certainly not to his close family members, and even to his friends. Only his political peers, his superiors or subordinates, would be allowed to know the truth of what Bismarck really wanted. And even then, not all of that truth. Let's look at this letter which he wrote to his sister in February 1862 to see exactly what Bismarck was after. He wrote, Since my illness, my mind has become so dull that I no longer have the energy for any serious activity. Three years ago, I should have still made a useful minister, but now I am like a worn-out trick rider, called on to go through his paces yet again. Meanwhile, the present reshuffle of appointments leaves me cold. I have a superstitious dread of asking anything for myself, in case my wish is granted and I live to regret it. I could go to Paris, or to London, or stay on here, without repining and without gladness, as it may please God and His Majesty, but it will make no difference to the country, or to me whatever is decided. Johanna hankers after Paris because she thinks the climate would be better for the children, but illness may strike anywhere. Accidents too. With God's help, one comes through or bows in submission to his will. I should show myself ungrateful to God and man if I pretended that things were going badly for me here, or that I was desperate for change. I dread the ministry as I shrink from a cold bath. I would far rather have any vacant post in the foreign service, or go back to Frankfurt, or even burn. We know that Bismarck was in full-on politician mode here, because he was lying not just to his sister, but also to Johanna about his prospects once again. He even insisted to her, in a letter that he wrote in mid-May 1862, that Our future is as uncertain as ever. Berlin has moved to centre stage. I do nothing for and nothing against, but will drink myself silly when I have my accreditation for Paris in my pocket. Here again was another mention of Paris. Was Bismarck genuinely about to become the ambassador to France? Surely this would make sense. If we consider Bismarck's record, his rhetoric as well, and his expressed sympathies towards a French understanding, surely it made sense for Berlin to try and curry favour with the French by sending over one of their biggest fans. But Bismarck wasn't telling the whole truth, as usual. Albrecht von Roon was the Minister for War, which meant that he saw the King regularly and was informed of his activities, and Roon knew for a fact that Bismarck had been meeting Wilhelm almost as regularly as he had been meeting his King. He wrote... Bismarck has been received several times in long audiences by the king. With several ministers, he had long discussions and went every day to the Ministry of War. The initiated believe that his appointment to the ministry must be expected shortly. In Bismarck's defence, then, it seemed that not even Albrecht von Roon was aware of what the king had planned for Bismarck. But, at the very least, Roon could see that Bismarck did want a post. At the very least, he wanted a post in the government... At most, he was angling for the top post, the minister-presidentship. And the fact that he visited the king so many times shows that he at least considered himself in the running. At the same time, though, the king had to consider what impact appointing Bismarck would have. You see, it wasn't so simple as just appointing Bismarck, and then the military reform bill would be passed and all of the king's problems would go away. By appointing someone with the reputation of Bismarck, this would send a clear message to the liberals. It would say, in effect, that the king was going to defy them 
and that he was going to defy them with probably their least favourite person. This could push the backs of the Liberals against the wall, and it could make the King's job even harder than he expected it to be. For that reason, maybe it was good to just leave Bismarck where he was, and just not touch him, as though he was some kind of poisoned chalice. On the other hand, maybe Bismarck would accept another post instead, maybe Minister Without Portfolio or something like that. No, Bismarck insisted, this would be unacceptable. I would not be seen by my ministerial peers as anything more than a nuisance, and a nuisance without any formal responsibilities at that. It would be the worst of both worlds, and if that's the best you can offer me, I'm going to stay where I am. On the 23rd of May, Bismarck wrote to Johanna, saying that he was bowing out of the unofficial contest and going to Paris. But the shadow still remains in the background. I was almost caught by the cabinet, so I will get away as quickly as I can. Perhaps they will find another minister-president as soon as I am out of sight. Yet only two days later, Bismarck wrote to Johanna that Everybody here is sworn to keep me here. And noting that any appointment to Paris would only be temporary, because apparently the king wasn't finished with him. As if to forcibly end the familiar torment, Bismarck went to Paris as acting ambassador, and he arrived there on the 2nd of June. I arrived here safely and lived like a rat in an empty barn, Bismarck complained, with some justification because his furniture and his family were strewn across his old postings. And Bismarck added, I still flatter myself with the hope that I shall seem less indispensable to his majesty when I have been out of his sight for a while, and that some hitherto unrecognised statesmen will be found to supplant me, so that I may ripen a little more here. I am waiting quietly to see whether any arrangements will be made about me, and of what kind. If nothing is done in a few weeks, I shall ask for leave of absence to fetch my wife, but must, in that case, have some security as to the length of my stay here. I cannot settle down here on the terms of a week's notice. From this, we could deduce that Bismarck was no longer interested in becoming minister-president, and that he wanted his candidacy to become even less attractive to the king, so that he would seem less indispensable to Wilhelm, and so that another candidate could come along. But this candidate which Bismarck imagined, the only other candidate available, was Albrecht von Bernstorff, the current ambassador to London, who himself seemed in two minds about the move to Berlin. After all, whoever took up that position would have to engage in the impossible struggle with the Liberals over the Reform Bill, and that didn't seem like a particularly attractive prospect, especially if you already were enjoying your old position, as Bernstorff certainly was, as the ambassador to London. On the 4th of June, Albrecht von Roon wrote to Bismarck, informing his friend that he had confronted the Foreign Minister of Prussia, Alexander von Schleinitz, and Roon recorded the conversation he had had with him. When I asked Schleinitz who, in his opinion, ought to act as head of the ministry, Schleinitz shrugged his shoulders, and when I added that then there would be nothing for it but for him to take pity on the post himself, he evaded my remark, neither refusing nor agreeing. You will not be surprised that this makes me feel anxious. I therefore found any opportunity yesterday in influential quarters to raise the minister-president question again, and found the same leaning towards you and the same indecision. Who can help here, and how will this end? Certainly, Albrecht von Roon didn't see the solution to this crisis emerging out of the wretched Landtag, which Roon then described for Bismarck in all of its horrid liberal glory. After those aforementioned elections where the Liberals increased in size even more, 
The king's options were thereby reduced, and Rune was determined to paint a picture to Bismarck of exactly how desperate the situation had become in the Landtag. The king, as it was plain from this extract, had very few friends he could now rely on. No party fit to govern, Rune began. The Democrats are excluded as a matter of course, but the great majority consists of Democrats and those who intend to become such, even though the rough drafts of their addresses are saturated with assurances of loyalty. Next to them come the Constitutionalists, i.e. the real ones, a little troop of not much more than 20 persons, about 15 Conservatives, 30 Catholics, some 20 Poles. Where then can any possible government find the necessary support? Which party can govern with this grouping, except the Democrats? And these cannot and must not. Under these circumstances, according to my logic, the present government must stay in office, however difficult it may be, and just for that reason, it must absolutely be reinforced, and the sooner the better. For the record, whenever Rune talked about Democrats, he was talking about the Liberals. It seemed liberal was such a dirty word, Rune didn't even dare use it in his correspondence with Bismarck. But Rune wasn't finished complaining. He complained some more to Bismarck about Albrecht von Bernstorff, remember that ambassador to London, who seemed to be tipped to be the next minister-president, so long as the king couldn't decide to appoint Bismarck. But as we also said, Bernstorff couldn't decide if he wanted to be minister-president or not, and this only served to prolong the crisis. It certainly does not appear to me to be for the interest of Prussia that Count Bernstorff should still hold two important posts, Rune said. I shall therefore be very glad if you are soon appointed President of the Ministry, though I am quite convinced Bernstorff will quickly abandon his dual position and no longer play the part of Colossus with one foot in London and one in Berlin. I appeal to your conscience not to make any counter-move, since it might and would result in driving the government into the open arms of the Democrats. And then, yes, then I hope the Telegraph will summon you hither. This is what all patriots long for. How could you then hesitate and manoeuvre? If Bismarck was encouraged by all of this news from Rune, who was his good friend and major contact in the Prussian government, then he still restrained himself for now. After all, he'd been in this position before almost exactly two years earlier, when he had had to watch as Alexander von Schleinitz retained the post of foreign minister and Bismarck was left in the cold. To avoid this disappointment again, Bismarck planned to act as though his appointment to Paris was a permanent one. Essentially, he was playing hard to get and pretending that all of this stuff didn't bother him, even though it really did. Bismarck replied to Rune a few days later on the 9th of June 1862 in a long letter which addressed several pressing matters. Bismarck said, The departmental ministers would not cause me any difficulty, but I have tolerably distinct opinions about foreign affairs, so probably his Bernstorff, but I am not acquainted with them, and I am not able to accommodate myself to his methods and his forms. Nor have I any confidence in his just estimate of political affairs, and presumably he is not in mine. However, the uncertainty cannot go on much longer. I shall wait until the 11th of June. If nothing is done by then, I shall write to His Majesty on the assumption that my position here in Paris is permanent and that I can make my domestic arrangements with a view to staying here till the winter at any rate, or longer. My luggage and carriages are still at St. Petersburg. I must find a place for them somewhere. You do me wrong if you think I am unwilling. On the contrary, I have lively attacks of the adventurous spirit of that animal which goes and dances on the ice when it is feeling too happy. Happy though he might have been, Bismarck couldn't wait forever. 
nor could he be expected to operate as ambassador to France without the usual comforts of such a Prussian official. As representative of the Prussian king to the French emperor, after all, a certain amount of pomp and ceremony was surely necessary. In fact, it was probably essential if Napoleon III was to take Bismarck seriously. At the very least, it seems that Bismarck's position now granted him the chance to engage in some private diplomacy with the French emperor, who don't forget, Bismarck was already very well acquainted with. And he described his relations with the French emperor to Albrecht von Roon, saying, I have found our friendly neighbour calm and accommodating, very well disposed towards us, very much inclined to discuss the difficulties of the German question. He can refuse his sympathies to none of the existing dynasties, but he hopes that Prussia will solve successfully the great problem set her, namely the German one. Then the government would also win confidence at home. Nothing but fine words. I tell people who ask why I have not settled down here comfortably that I am thinking of taking a few months' leave before long and then returning here with my wife. As he shows here, Bismarck had an answer for everything, even for those French ministers who might have wondered why this well-known Junker wasn't yet permanently settled. Did King Wilhelm have other plans for Bismarck? The Frenchman may have wondered. We can only imagine how muddled and confusing Wilhelm's situation must have seemed to the outside world, let alone to Bismarck himself. But Bismarck was determined to keep up appearances, and unlike before, he refused to lose his cool now. If he was to stay in Paris, fine, but he would have to be afforded the minimal standards of respect which an ambassador required. This would be the litmus test. If Wilhelm allowed his furniture and family to move to Paris with all the expense and arrangement and bother that that entailed, then surely this meant Bismarck was no longer in the running for the post of either foreign minister or minister president, the latter of which Bismarck preferred. The ball either way, and Bismarck was adamant about this, the ball was in the king's court. But the king continued to fumble the ball, and poor old Bernstorff began to regret agreeing to consider the post of foreign minister, and Bismarck then began to embrace his own position as ambassador to France. It certainly seems that Napoleon III was happy to be in Bismarck's company. So at the very least, someone was happy that the decision hadn't yet been made in Berlin. In a startling conversation which Napoleon had with Bismarck on the 26th of June, the two men, one an increasingly plump emperor, the other a towering bearded Junker, walked side by side. It was a walk with serious implications, and Bismarck records it in detail in his memoirs. For the sake of foreshadowing and seeing what was to come next in Bismarck's career, conversations like these are fascinating, so we're going to recount what he wrote in full. In the course of conversation about the political questions of the day in the last few years, Bismarck wrote, Napoleon asked me suddenly whether I thought the King of Prussia would be inclined to enter into an alliance with him. I answered that the King of Prussia had the most friendly feelings towards him, and that the prejudices which formerly prevailed in the public mind against France had almost disappeared. But alliances were the result of circumstances which determined their need or their utility. An alliance assumed a motive, a definite object, the emperor disputed the necessity of any such assumption. There were, the emperor said, powers that stood in friendly relations to one another, and others with whom this was less the case. In view of the uncertain future, confidence must be directed towards some one side. He did not speak of an alliance with a view to any adventurous project, but he thought that between Prussia and France there was a conformity of interests, in which lay an element of a potentially durable entente. 
It would be a great mistake to try to create events. It would be impossible to calculate their tendency and strength in advance. But it was possible to make arrangements to meet them, to be forearmed while considering means to confront them and profit by them. This idea of a diplomatic alliance, in which the custom of mutual confidence was assumed and the two parties learned to count on one another in difficult situations, was further developed by the Emperor of France. What a startling conversation and fascinating extract this was. Napoleon III had apparently decided on an alliance according to this, which he would be directing towards Vienna. Was this the case? Furthermore, had Napoleon begun to see France's position in the context of the wider continent, would he soon be proposing to the Tsar that Bismarck's old plan for a three-way Franco-Prussian-Russian alliance be fulfilled? Bismarck's careful tone throughout this extract is palpable. He noted to the French emperor that Wilhelm was happy with France and there was certainly less prejudice towards the French than had existed in Prussia before. Indeed, Wilhelm had even visited France briefly in 1861 and in March 1862 a free trade agreement was signed between France and the Zollverein. This latter act represented an unprecedented coup on Prussia's part since Prussia effectively controlled the Zollverein and had now gone one step further in its declaration of economic war against Austria. Austria, remember, being the only German power of significance that was excluded from the Zollverein, or German Customs Union. Under this agreement, Prussia and France would increase their profits from trade and commerce and would draw closer together economically, and Austria would be left further out in the cold. There was no question of Austria being welcomed into the Zollverein now, considering her ramshackle and highly varied markets, free trade with Austria and France was out of the question. This agreement was part of what might be called free trade fever, or at least that's what I call it, because at this very moment the United Kingdom and France were also formulating a free trade agreement, which would cause an awful lot of political ripples in Britain, but which did prove durable enough to last throughout the 1860s. In short, Prussia wasn't the exception when it came to making free trade agreements. But if we look at all these events in the context of the German states, then the natural outcome of Prussia's industrious and single-minded citizens, in contrast to Austria's troubled and polyglot empire, had enabled Prussia to punch far above its weight. As a result, the Austrians were getting nervous and they were sending feelers out across Europe. It was in the context of these developments that Napoleon, while walking with Bismarck, stopped in his tracks and made the following striking claim to Bismarck, who listened diligently to all that the smug French emperor had to say. You cannot imagine, Napoleon began, what singular overtures Austria made to me a few days ago. It appears that the coincidence of your appointment with the arrival of Herr von Budberg had caused a regular panic in Vienna. The Herr von Budberg that Napoleon refers to here was Andreas Ludwig Karl von Budberg. He was a Russian politician, but he was very much in the pro-Prussian camp, and he had served as Russian ambassador to Berlin between 1858 to 1862, before he had then been appointed ambassador to Paris from the spring of 1862. The arrival of the Russian von Budberg in Paris, as Napoleon III intimated here, seemed to suggest to Vienna that all of the anti-Austrian dignitaries were converging in Paris at once, and surely some anti-Austrian league would be the result of this. The stars had never seemed so aligned when it came to creating this anti-Austrian league, 
and at all costs, Vienna wished to avoid this. Napoleon wasn't finished speaking, though, and he continued to say to Bismarck that Prince Metternich told me he had received instructions which went so far that he himself was alarmed by them. He had authorization, as unlimited as a sovereign, had ever entrusted to his representative, in respect to all and every question which I might raise, so that he might come to an agreement with me at any cost. Was Austria attempting to forge an alliance of desperation with France here? Did Austria wish to include France and Prussia in this alliance together? Bismarck, in spite of himself, wasn't quite sure. This revelation placed me in some perplexity, Bismarck wrote in his memoirs, for apart from the incompatibility of the interests of the two states, I have an almost superstitious dislike to being entangled with the fortunes of Austria. Indeed, Bismarck had no intention of bringing Prussia into an Austro-French alliance, if such an option even existed. Indeed, this conversation only confirmed his belief about Austrian perfidy and unreliability, and he wrote in his memoirs that If a Franco-Austrian coalition was not already in existence against us, we owed this not to Austria but to France, yet not to any special affection for us on Napoleon's part, but to his doubts whether Austria would be in a position to sail with the nationality breeze then blowing strong. In the report which I made to the king, my deduction from all this was not that we ought to enter into an agreement with France, but that we could not count upon Austria's loyalty to the Confederation as against France, nor could we hope to win Austria's free consent to the improvement of our position in Germany. Even as his political future hung in the air, Bismarck was clearly able to focus on the most important question to him that of Prussia's position, and to provide in the process a welcome diplomatic interlude in the otherwise suffocating concerns about his own private fortunes and career. Taking his mind off things by getting down to strict business was one tactic. Another tactic was going on an extended holiday, since as Bismarck had learned by now, fruit ripened slowly in Berlin, and he was determined to show that he was in no hurry either. Bismarck thus began what developed into a two-month-long holiday, to the utter despair of Albrecht von Roon, who wrote to his friend on the last day of June 1862 that More courage, more energetic activity abroad and at home, for that you are irreplaceable. How is it possible that Prussia will not go under? And nonetheless, we must fight to the last drop of blood. Can that happen with a knife without a blade and which has no grip? Now you are off to London, Vichy, Truville, and I don't know where and when you will get this letter. This shows that while Bismarck maintained a calm exterior, his friend in Berlin was the very opposite of calm, and this trial was beginning to wear him down. Why would the blasted king not make up his mind? It certainly didn't help matters that Wilhelm's wife, Augusta, was a determined foe of Bismarck, and had been since the episode of 1848, when Bismarck, if you'll remember, had tried to persuade her brother-in-law, her husband, and herself to stand down in the name of her son Frederick. Since then, Augusta had kept a pace with Bismarck's career, and she hadn't liked what she had seen. Augusta declared herself in early July 1862 that As the envoy to the Frankfurt Diet, Herr von Bismarck always filled those governments friendly to Prussia with mistrust, and affected those houses hostile to Prussia with political views which did not correspond to the position of Prussia in Germany, but to its status as a great threatening power. 
According to Augusta then, Bismarck made Prussia's problems worse by exaggerating her power to her rivals and blustering and bullying his way through her potential friends. As a result, creating a situation where nobody loved Prussia, but everyone feared her. This, Augusta noted, despite the fact that Prussia could never achieve all that Bismarck accredited to her, and that she was simply not entitled to punch so far above her weight as Bismarck seemed to claim she was. The natural order of things simply made this impossible, but Bismarck wasn't concerned with the preservation of this natural order, as Augusta was soon to learn. In Rune's case, the remark that he didn't know where Bismarck would receive his latest letter proved accurate. By the time Bismarck received this letter in the first few days of July, he was in London. Bismarck had landed in London while he had had the time in early July 1862, and he used the occasion to meet with some of the most important statesmen Britain had to offer. And it's here that we bring our story full circle. Sort of, anyway. You'll remember that we opened our first episode with an anecdote of Bismarck talking to Disraeli and talking to the Russian ambassador while in London in July 1862. At that point, we said in that first episode, Bismarck had not yet reached the top of the Prussian government, but he certainly thought that he would soon reach that position. And he'd set out his plan for the next few years, wherein he would derail the Austrian dominance over Germany and usurp the Austrian position, propelling Prussia in the process to the very height of its powers. Whether Bismarck said all of this to Disraeli and the Russian ambassador is hard to say for certain because the sources are a little bit patchy about it. But one thing is for sure, Bismarck made a serious impact upon Disraeli and Disraeli did not forget this younger when he met him again several years later. This meeting with Disraeli should also place Bismarck's earlier claims that he had no interest in the post of minister-president into proper context. In other words, it should expose Bismarck as something of a liar because, of course, he had been looking for the post of minister-president. Because despite what Bismarck claimed in letters to his wife or to his family members, he was angling for the post of minister-president, and he was only too eager to tell Disraeli that he fully believed he would be minister-president within a short while, whereupon he could then realise his plan for the aggrandizement of Prussia and her usurpation of Austria in Germany as well. If Bismarck hadn't wanted the post of minister-president, then why would he have claimed that in a short while he would be sitting on that exact chair, directing the affairs of Prussia as its virtual dictator? The conversation certainly made its impact on Disraeli, as Bismarck hoped it would, and we remind ourselves of what Disraeli said after the event to the Austrian ambassador, warning him that Bismarck meant what he said. And this was true, of course, because within nine years, all of what Bismarck had planned and all that he had declared had come to pass. He would be minister-president, he would defeat Austria, he would unite Germany, he would destroy all opposition to his regime. But for now, he was the unappointed minister-president. He was the man on vacation. He was officially, at least, just the Prussian ambassador to France. All that, though, was soon to change. By the middle of July, Bismarck returned to Paris for a brief moment to answer Albrecht von Roon's letter that had urged courage and patience, and which Rune had sent at the end of June. So anxious had Rune been that he had even telegraphed Bismarck privately after he had sent that letter to see if Bismarck had gotten it. This was a strange step that Bismarck alluded to in his response to his reliable but evidently worn-out friend in Berlin. But Bismarck still was refusing to come to Berlin and to speak with Rune in person. 
he preferred to justify himself to his friend and explain why he fully intended to get away from everything. As Bismarck wrote, I am quite superfluous here now because there is neither emperor, minister, nor ambassador here. I am not in very good health, and this provincial existence, with the suspense of whether and how without any regular business, is not calming to the nerves. I thought that I was coming here for ten days or a fortnight, and now I have been here for seven weeks, without ever knowing whether I shall have to stay another twenty-four hours. I do not want to force myself on the king by lying at anchor in Berlin, and I will not go home, because I am afraid of being stuck fast for an unlimited time in the hotel on my way through Berlin. The king is doubtful, according to Bernstorff, whether I can be of any use in the present situation, and whether my appointment, if it takes place at all, ought not to be postponed till the winter. Under these circumstances, I am repeating my request for six weeks' leave, which I put on the following grounds. Bismarck then went on to cite a number of reasons why he was better off away from Berlin. He needed time to improve his health, the king had to decide for himself, Bernstorff was probably going to become foreign minister, etc., etc., However, a point which Edward Crankshaw notes, and which Bismarck doesn't mention here, is that Otto was here establishing a pattern which he was later to repeat ad nauseum. That pattern being, whenever matters came to a head and there was a possibility that Bismarck might be needed, Bismarck found it beneficial to run away, essentially, to let his peers sweat, as if to let them see for themselves how desperately they all needed him. By making himself unreachable during the rest of July and most of August of 1862, Bismarck was, on the surface at least, having a break from everything. But he was also showing his peers, his superiors and his subordinates just how important he was. As the talk in Berlin might develop to something of the effect of, where is Bismarck and how can we find him? If they did want him, then Bismarck believed they would have to show it by giving him the position he desired. Understandably enough, he was sick and tired of being at the beck and call of the indecisive king. Perhaps he was also sick of Rune urging him in so many letters to hold fast or rush to Berlin or stand down, etc., as Bismarck put it himself. Perhaps his majesty will never make up his mind to appoint me, for I really do not see why he should do it at all, after not doing it during the last six weeks. But there is absolutely no reason why I should be either here, swallowing the hot dust of Paris, yawning in cafes or theatres, or camping at Berlin, in the Hotel Royal, as a political dilettante. I could spend my time better at the baths. There was probably some truth to the notion that Bismarck needed a break from politics, but the real question was whether he would allow himself to have one, as this question of his future hung in the air. Could it really be his moment, after so many lost opportunities, so many disappointments, and realistically, so short a career and such a bank of enemies to draw upon? Rather than obsess over this in an empty Paris, Bismarck went on what turned out to be the last genuinely relaxing holiday, the last genuinely enjoyable holiday of his life. Bismarck went to Biarritz a French resort seaside town which was fashionable among Europe's elite and which faced into the Atlantic, only a day's ride from the Spanish border. And it was here, surprisingly enough with all that was going on in his life, that Bismarck seems to have fallen in love. It was a bizarre interlude from the chaos of Berlin, but, but almost despite himself, Bismarck became enchanted with the 22-year-old wife of a noble Russian prince. Her name was Kathy Orloff, and she captured his heart. Bismarck and Kathy Orloff 
spent several days swimming, hiking and deep in conversation until Bismarck was smitten enough to declare to Johanna, his own wife, don't forget. Next to me is the most charming of all women, whom you would certainly love if you knew her better. A bit of Marie von Tadden, but original for herself. Funny, clever and charming. When you come together, you will forgive me that I go into such raptures. I am ludicrously healthy, and as happy as I can be when from my loved ones. This allusion by Bismarck to Marie von Tadden, the woman that Bismarck had fallen in love with in the mid-1840s before proposing to Marie von Tadden's good friend and his current wife, Johanna, must have stung Johanna's pride, who was then stuck on the other side of Europe in the comparatively unglamorous Pomeranian estate with all the children. But Johanna was not jealous, nor was she particularly worried. Instead, she was actually pleased, and she was relieved as well that Bismarck had found someone to reinvigorate his zest for life after so many months lost at sea, or lost in the depths of a political wilderness. Were I at all inclined to jealousy and envy, Johanna wrote to a good friend of hers, I should be tyrannised to the depths now by these passions, but my soul has no room for them, and I rejoice quite enormously that my beloved husband has found this charming woman. But for her, he never would have found peace for so long in one place, or become so well that he boasts of being in every letter. Perhaps she sensed that Bismarck needed this fling, so to speak, because it was to be the final fling of his life. In spite of the endless inaction in Berlin and the uncertainty that went along with it, Bismarck had been able to enjoy himself. But this party with Kathy Orloff couldn't last forever. He said goodbye to the Orloffs in mid-September as they went to Geneva without him. Bismarck then sat down at last to address the situation. His time away from the question of succeeding to the post of Minister-President had calmed his nerves and done wonders for his health, but he had emerged on the other side of the holiday no more certain where he was supposed to stay. He first had to address a letter sent to him by Rune on the 31st of August, which he had Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
yet to properly read. Among other things, the letter was a repetition of the previous crises, with a sort of update about the king's state of mind. I can imagine that you, my old friend, are greatly disgusted, Rune began, before adding, I can measure your vexation by my own, but I still hope that you will not sulk on that account, but rather remember the ancient knightly duty of hewing out a way for the king, even when, as at present, he has gone into danger wantonly. But you are only a human being, and, what is more, a husband and a father. You want, besides all your work, to have a home and a family life. You want, therefore, to know and to know soon where your bed and writing table are to be set up, whether in Paris or in Berlin. And the king's word that you were not to establish yourself at Berlin has, as yet, as far as I know, not been recalled. But you must have certainty. I will do my part, and this not from selfishness, but from patriotic interest, to procure you this certainty before long. Once more, Albrecht von Roon was looking out for his friend. This he was doing, he said, not out of a sense of selfishness, or even because he was his friend, but out of a sense of patriotism. Indeed, Rune believed, and would always believe, that Bismarck was right for the job, and he would extricate Prussia from the current crisis over the deadlock between Parliament and King. Still, Bismarck's promotion was interestingly considered only in the context of his ability to work miracles. Bismarck's reputation as something of a fixer preceded him, but once he was appointed, Bismarck would put his own stamp on the government, so long as he had room to gallop in the ministry as its minister-president or chancellor or prime minister, or whatever way you want to call it. The solution to the question of what post Bismarck would have would be, Rune claimed, to appoint him as minister-president, but without portfolio, meaning that he would have less control, but as minister-president, he would also be the senior politician in the country, so control would be only a matter of time. This was a strange, almost pointless distinction, between being minister-president or being minister for portfolio or whatever, but Rune believed it would ease the concerns of Bismarck's opponents, and it was just a wordy, vague enough solution to make it pass the king as well. Rune said, I am therefore pretending that I have your consent in advising your appointment, for the present, to the presidency without a portfolio, which I have hitherto avoided doing. It cannot be managed in any other way. If you absolutely decline this, then you can throw me over, or order me to keep silence. I shall speak to His Majesty on the 7th of September, at a very confidential audience, which he has promised me on that day, so you will still have time for protesting. Of the general situation, I do not mean to speak today. The internal catastrophe, in my opinion, will not take place now, but early in the spring of 1863, and then you must, necessarily, be present. It will be absolutely decisive for our future." This was quite the testament. If Bismarck went along with it, then Rune would forward a recommendation for the Junker to sit at the head of Prussia's government. While there, the crisis which was to come in spring 1863 could be dealt with. As we know, of course, this crisis which Rune predicted as beginning in spring 1863 was not in fact to be so far away. The crisis was to be only a few weeks away, and Bismarck intended to be ready for it. When Bismarck finally took the time to reply to this letter on the 12th of September, 1862, he can't have known that within ten days he would be in the presence of King Wilhelm, receiving his appointment as Minister-President. Now I know that spoils things a little bit, but trust me, the story of how it happened is interesting even if you know the outcome. 
Bismarck replied to Rune with all the grace and appreciation we'd come to expect from him, in addition to an appeal for the whole ordeal to simply end, even if that meant being the ambassador to France for another decade. As Bismarck wrote, Your letter, unfortunately, leads me to suppose that the uncertainty will be just as great at Christmas as it is now. My belongings are still at St. Petersburg and will be snowed up there. My carriages are at Stetten, my horses in the country near Berlin, my family are in Pomerania, and I myself on the high road. I'm going back now to Paris, although I have less than ever to do there, but my leave is at an end. My plan is now to propose to Bernstorff that I shall go to Berlin to discuss future arrangements verbally with him. I have never refused to accept the presidency without a portfolio as soon as the king demands it. I have only said that I consider the arrangement unsatisfactory. I am still prepared to enter without a portfolio, but I cannot see any serious intention of it. If His Majesty would say to me November 1st, or January 1st, or April 1st, then I should know what I was about, and I am not a man to make difficulties. I only ask for a hundredth part of the consideration of which Bernstorff received such rich measure. This uncertainty takes away all my pleasure in business, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for every friendly service that you undertake in order to put an end to it. If this does not soon succeed, I must take matters as they stand, and say to myself, I am the king's ambassador in Paris, and I will send for a chick and child to join me there on October 1st. When that is done, his majesty can dismiss me from my office, but he can no longer compel me to move again immediately. I would rather go home to the country, for then I should know where I am living. In my solitude I have, with God's help, recovered my former health, and I am better now than I have been for the last ten years, but I have not heard a single word about our political world. I know, too, from experience, that apparitions of this sort are unwelcome. They lead His Majesty to assume ambitions and pushing intentions on my part, which God knows are very far from me. I am so well satisfied to be His Majesty's ambassador in Paris that I will ask for nothing but the certainty of remaining in this position till 1875. Procure me this or any other certainty and I will paint angel's wings on your photograph. This was a fascinating reply and it threw up all sorts of what might have been questions about Bismarck's career. Again though, the clock was ticking for him, just as it was ticking for real in Berlin. Time, at last, seemed to be running out for Wilhelm to make the decision. Still refusing to compromise, even when Rune pleaded with him to do so, because the army was his pride and joy. And if he could not, as king, ensure the proper maturation and improvement of his pride and joy, then what was the point in being king of Prussia at all? Abdication, so it seems, was increasingly looming into Wilhelm's view as the only option. He would abdicate, or the land tag would give way. There was no room for option C. Perhaps not, Albrecht von Rune would have said, but your highness... Don't you remember option E? Remember the option to the current crisis which would only be taken at the final hour? The appointment of a figure who could cut through the red tape, unbalance our enemies and get us what we want? That miracle worker with the reactionary reputation, surely this was the answer to the current woes. This was an argument Rune had advocated since 1859, and it was one which Wilhelm must have been seriously tired of by now. But the crisis had a way of smoothing down old concerns, Berenstorff, that former ambassador come minister-president, telegraphed Paris to request that Bismarck come to Berlin at once. The date was the 16th of September. The next day, in case he didn't get the message, Rune cabled Bismarck with a familiar phrase, danger in delay. 
The same phrase which had brought Bismarck to Berlin in high spirits in 1860 was now destined to bring him to Berlin again. This time the situation was drastically different though. The moment of truth had come. Bismarck arrived in the Prussian capital on the 20th of September 1862. On the 22nd of September, Roon met with the king in the midst of the crisis. The Landtag had rejected the military reform bill by an enormous margin and the king's ministers declared that they had had enough they submitted their resignations one after the other. The king's cabinet was starting to fold over, and the crisis had surely reached a fever pitch. Now Wilhelm would either stand down and bow to Parliament, or he would stand his ground and suffer whatever consequences might follow. He asked Rune for advice, surely knowing what Rune would say. Your Majesty, summon Bismarck, Rune said. He will not want it, and he will not take it on. Wilhelm lamented. Besides, he is not here and nothing can be discussed with him. On the contrary, as we know, Bismarck had arrived two days before in Berlin, as Rune pointed out. Your Majesty, Bismarck is here. He will accept Your Majesty's command willingly. Here was the final test. Would King Wilhelm finally bite the bullet and appoint Bismarck at long last? You might think the story is concluded, but actually there was one last wrinkle to overcome. Unfortunately for Bismarck, he had met with Prince Frederick upon his arrival in Berlin on the 20th of September, despite knowing very little about what was happening, so he claimed, because he hadn't read German newspapers for so long. This made Wilhelm suspicious that in the knowledge of the king's intention to abdicate, Bismarck was already trying to cozy up to Wilhelm's successor. But Bismarck was doing no such thing, a rare occasion when he was accused of something and was wholly blameless. And two days later, when the king and Rune had their aforementioned conversation that we alluded to just there, it ended with the king relenting. He would bring Bismarck into the palace for an audience, but it was not destined to be a particularly friendly audience. On a table in the corner of the room lay Wilhelm's resignation letter, and if Bismarck couldn't convince his king to stand strong, then Wilhelm maintained he would abdicate. It must have been an immensely tense scene for Bismarck to walk into, and very far from what he had imagined when he had envisioned on so many occasions the moment of his rise to power. We can safely imagine that in his spare time or in his daydreams, Bismarck had imagined this occasion coming to pass. He had envisioned himself reaching the top of the greasy Prussian pole and ruling Prussia as his own state. However, he had imagined this coming to pass. The reality turned out to be very different. Before he could get this ascension, before he could rise to power, Bismarck would essentially have to persuade the king that this was a good idea. Wilhelm was on board with the idea of appointing Bismarck, sort of. He wasn't fully there yet. He had yet to be convinced that this radical Junker was the answer to his prayers. So Bismarck had to persuade him that he was. Even now, though, Bismarck gave a hint of his powers over the king. As soon as he entered the scene, he immediately made himself the master of the room. Or at least, according to Bismarck's personal account, this is what happened. What follows is a particularly long quote, and we have had several long quotes already, but due to the significance of this moment, and the fact that nobody covers it better than Bismarck himself, I feel you'll forgive me if I recount it here. I was received at Babelsberg on the 22nd of September, Bismarck began. Babelsberg was the king's summer palace, which lay beside the river Havel in the city of Potsdam. 
And listen in to this, because this is really where the story changes for Bismarck. It was a tense moment. It was a pivotal moment. It was one of those moments where historians could look back and imagine what would have happened if things had taken a different course. That they didn't, and that Bismarck was appointed, had an awful lot to do with the man himself, as Bismarck recorded. The situation only became clear to me when His Majesty defined it in some such words as these. I will not resign if I cannot do it in such a fashion as I can be answerable for to God, my conscience and my subjects, but I cannot do that if I am to rule according to the will of the present majority in Parliament, and I can no longer find any ministers prepared to conduct my government without subjecting themselves and me to that parliamentary majority. I have therefore resolved to lay down my crown, and I have already sketched out the proclamation of my abdication, based on the motives to which I have referred. The king, and this is Bismarck writing here in his memoirs, the king showed me the document in his own handwriting lying on the table, whether already signed or not I do not know. His Majesty concluded by repeating that he could not govern without suitable ministers. I replied that His Majesty had been acquainted ever since May with my readiness to enter the ministry. I was certain that Rune would remain with me on his side, and I did not doubt that we should succeed in completing the cabinet, supposing other members should feel themselves compelled to resign on account of my admission. After a good deal of consideration and discussion, the king asked me whether I was prepared as minister to advocate the reorganisation of the army, and when I assented, he asked me further whether I would do so in opposition to the majority in Parliament and its resolutions. When I asserted my willingness, the king finally declared, Then it is my duty, with your help, to attempt to continue the battle, and I shall not abdicate. I do not know whether he destroyed the document which was lying on the table, or whether he preserved it. This stormy encounter between king and master was not the final scene of the day. To find this, we must look again at Bismarck's memoirs. Bismarck records how he and Wilhelm then went for a walk after this meeting, and Wilhelm presented to Bismarck then an eight-page dossier detailing all that the opposition demanded. Bismarck's riposte against these demands were designed to appeal to Wilhelm's sense of tradition and dynastic pride. It was not a case of conservative versus liberal, but of monarchy versus parliament, Bismarck declared, and for his part, he knew that it would be disastrous if the monarchy lost this battle. I would rather perish with the king than forsake your majesty in the contest with parliamentary government, Bismarck added. He then explained the twofold reasoning behind declarations like these, which might appear to us as somehow unsuited to his normally self-interested character. This view was at the time strong and absolute in me, Bismarck claimed, because I regarded the negations and phrases of the opposition of that day as politically disastrous in the face of the national task of Prussia, and because I cherished such strong feelings of devotion and affection for Wilhelm that the thought of perishing with him appeared to me, under the circumstances, a natural and congenial conclusion to my life. Bismarck described how, after this verbal riposte in support of the king, the king then tore that eight-page dossier, submitted by the liberals, into so many pieces, and put these pieces into his coat to symbolically burn later. On that day, Bismarck says, the king ratified his position as minister and interim chairman of the ministry, a position which would be made permanent once the king had dismissed Prince Hohenzollern, since adhering to the proper protocols was important. Bismarck didn't sweat the details. He knew that Prince Hohenzollern, who had been appointed as minister-president in 1859, 
had been longing to leave the ministry ever since he had been appointed. Like a surfer preparing for a huge wave and bracing himself, the two men stiffened their resolve, with the expectation that the opposition would take the news of the appointment of Bismarck as a direct provocation. To appoint the most reactionary, extreme, ambitious, unapologetic Junker that he could find was nothing less than a declaration of war by the king on those liberals who for years and years had made his life a misery. This was the king's revenge on German liberalism. Little did Wilhelm realise that Bismarck had more than revenge in mind. Oh, Bismarck wanted revenge, for sure, but he also wanted more than revenge. In fact, now that he had reached the top of the greasy Prussian pole, Otto von Bismarck wanted it all. Poor Mama, how the appointment of her arch-enemy will pain her. These were the words of the crown princess Louise of Prussia, the daughter of Wilhelm and Augusta, and they were written in Louise's diary the day after Bismarck's appointment as minister-president had become known on the 23rd of September. Nor was she the only figure to weigh in on the issue, which was now causing a mixture of shock, consternation, and in some rare cases, nods of approval. Yet even from some of Bismarck's allies, news of his appointment evoked strong emotions. We would do well to revert to the words issued by Leopold von Gerlach, one of the most important men in Bismarck's life, who had served as mentor and advisor, and essentially his sponsor for much of his earlier years. Once he heard the news that Bismarck had been summoned to Berlin, he knew what it meant, and he wrote to a friend on the 20th of September that... However great my reservations are about Bismarck, not only in respect to Austria or France, but in respect of God's commandments, I wouldn't even dare to work against him, because I know no possible person who would be better. If Bismarck fails, we fall into God's hands. Similarly, in the case of Bismarck's private banker, even though the appointment surely meant good things for him and his investments, he made the following private observation to a friend of the Rothschild family on the 24th of September, saying, We are in the middle of a ministerial crisis. Herr von Bismarck as minister-president is occupied with the formation of a new cabinet. Rune, the war minister, remains, and this is proof enough that the conflict between parliament and crown will not be solved by change of ministry. It appears as if we were to get an entirely reactionary ministry. But if Bismarck's friends, if Bismarck's enemies and if Bismarck's peers were waiting for this reactionary tide to sweep across Prussia and for all of his enemies to be overwhelmed and for his will to be done, they were to be, I suppose disappointed is the wrong word, but perhaps underwhelmed. Impressive and strong a character as he might be, Bismarck had to work within the confines of Prussian governance. And for the moment, that meant that he was going to tend to his own immediate whims. Interestingly, and this proves my thesis, I believe that Bismarck was a foodie deep down, he asked if his old chef that had served him in Frankfurt could be sent to Berlin to serve him as he was minister-president. Next, Bismarck ejected Bernstorff, sent him back to London, and took over the position of foreign minister. And this was a development which can cause some confusion when people are examining Bismarck's career. Traditionally, the posts of minister-president and foreign minister were separate, but then again, these traditions hadn't lasted all that long. While they were separate posts, it was by no means unheard of for the two of them to be held by the same person. In Austria as well, where the labels at least of these posts were similar, 
Metternich had held the post of Minister-President and Foreign Minister at the same time, and so had his ideological successor, Felix von Schwarzenberg, although he had only held those posts for a short space of time. Von Buell, the man who succeeded Schwarzenberg, and Count Rackberg also succeeded to these two posts, but we see in their cases that they took the decision to delegate these positions to their peers. Apparently, by the early 1860s, holding the two posts at the same time was too much for most men. But Bismarck wasn't like most men. He didn't see the two positions as overwhelming and as granting him too many duties and responsibilities. He saw it as the best way to pool his power and to guarantee absolutely that he would have an iron grip not just on domestic Prussian policy, but also on foreign Prussian policy. And it was that latter policy, the foreign, that he was most interested in. In fact, it would be correct to say that it obsessed him. I would argue that getting to the position of Minister-President was only a means to an end for Bismarck. While it was great to reach this post, all that it really meant to Bismarck now was that the fun could begin. And that now that he was here, he could implement that policy which he had for so long advocated. Competition and confrontation with Austria. Not so fast, said Bismarck's contemporaries. First, he would have to reckon with the mess that was underway in Prussia. Bismarck responded pretty early and, not necessarily effectively, to the deadlock between Parliament and Crown. On the 29th of September, as a provocation to the Landtag, he withdrew the Reform Bill altogether, and he then prepared his first speech before the Budget Committee. The Budget Committee of the Landtag was stocked with Liberals, and it was supposed to decide whether or not the King's Reform Bill would pass. Obviously, it was not going to pass it, because it didn't believe that the Reform Bill was a good idea. To Bismarck, though, the fact that all of his enemies were sitting on the one committee didn't seem to dissuade him from visiting that committee and making a key, very important speech as he did so. In fact, Bismarck's speech would show that he hadn't changed and that he didn't intend to change for the purpose of his new position. He wouldn't be mellowed and he wouldn't be reduced in his intensity of feeling simply because he was now in one of the most important posts of the country. He would remain true to his character, a character which had first been felt in his first speech of May 1847. He would be violent, he would be confrontational and he would certainly be controversial. But if anyone had been paying attention to Bismarck's career up to this point, they shouldn't have been particularly surprised that he refused to change his ways. In addition, they shouldn't have been too surprised if they had listened to his very first speech in the United Deed in 1847, that his first speech as Minister-President was bound to cause some waves. Before we look at that speech though, the Iron and Blood speech, which is nowadays famous, I want to take a second to appreciate Bismarck's rise, because after all, we have been building to this moment for the bulk of this story. So I feel it's only appropriate to take stock of the situation and really mark the occasion of Bismarck's ascension to the very top of Prussian government. Interestingly, despite the fact that Bismarck had spent so long angling for this post, and despite what he might claim he was angling for it, There's no moment in his memoirs when Bismarck seems to punch the air and rejoice at reaching the top of the greasy pole. Now, that's not to say he would never issue any proud, triumphant proclamations. His famous declaration after the successful conclusion of the Austro-Prussian War in 1866, to the effect that he had beaten them all, 
springs to mind. But in 1862, we might imagine that Bismarck would be well within his rights to take a moment to say, I told you so, or I knew I could do this all along, or bet you feel a bit sick now that I have all this power. But Bismarck didn't do any of this. Instead, in his memoirs, he explains over the course of about 20 pretty dry pages, to be honest, how Prussia got to this point in European history. How it had gone through several regimes and it had missed several opportunities, how loyalty to the dynasty had helped define Prussia, how German dynasties were important to the other German states and defined them, and how Bismarck believed he would be different from his predecessors, because he would demand loyalty from his subordinates, and he would do this in the name of the king. Because of the lack of celebration on Bismarck's part, biographies of him don't really stop to appreciate how significant this rise was. They kind of just state it as happening without really dwelling on it. Bismarck's tone was to the effect that he now had the reins, there was much work to be done, and he was about to get on with it. But he didn't really revel in his success, and this can seem kind of flat as a conclusion to the story, which is why we didn't conclude it here and we went on to 1864. But it can also seem a bit sad, somewhat nostalgic, that Bismarck was here forever closing the door, forever drawing the curtains on that period of political instability and uncertainty which had defined his life and career for so long. How long had he waited for a word of approval from the king to the effect that he would soon be the minister-president? Now, after about three years of waiting, he finally had that confirmation. But Bismarck didn't dwell on the fact that everything was about to change. He moved on from that point of his life with as little sentiment or emotion as he would later exude when he destroyed his old relationship with Napoleon III, for instance. As far as Bismarck was concerned, or at least so it seems, there was nothing odd about his rise. The simple fact was that he was good enough and his time had come. He had paid his dues and now he had to fix what Wilhelm believed was broken. He didn't mourn, he wasn't particularly nostalgic and he didn't show much emotion at all. Bismarck believed this next chapter had arrived, so he was determined that he should never have to wait on anyone else ever again. He had known himself to be special for so long. He had nourished that chip on his shoulder since the moment he realised he was in any way capable or good at politics, and now he had been vindicated in this belief. The king had recognised his talent, a talent which Bismarck had always believed was within him, and now he would have a chance to prove it. Now that he had this position, Bismarck was convinced he couldn't relinquish it until he had settled the questions which had always affected him. These questions being, of course, Austria and Prussia's future within Germany. Now that he was armed with control, total control, because Bismarck would accept nothing less, over foreign and domestic affairs, he finally had the means. But would these means bring about the desired ends? Let's find out. No other figure in history, certainly not Prussian history, had ever ascended to such heights with such a minuscule portfolio of experience. Bismarck was unique in that this wasn't seen to count against him. He was also unique because very soon it was obvious that what Bismarck lacked in experience he would make up for with the single-minded pursuit of his goal. That goal being making Prussia as strong as was possible with himself at its head. It certainly helped. Bismarck lived in a political system which wasn't built to handle criticism or contrary views. While he had been on the outside, Bismarck had relied on his connections to make his voice heard. But now that he was in control, it quickly became obvious that he would tolerate no dissension, 
no opposition, and certainly no challengers to his position. He was close as one could get to a dictator, a position reinforced by his domineering personality, though interestingly, unlike other dictators, Bismarck was dependent on a figure above him, on the king, who could theoretically dismiss him at any time in his career. AJP Taylor notes on Bismarck's position that The Prussian Council of Ministers rarely debated policy. It was called together only when it was necessary to pass a unanimous resolution or force the king on some distasteful course. Bismarck conducted foreign policy in autocratic isolation, easily roused to anger if some ambassador tried to influence him. He knew nothing of internal affairs or of economics when he became prime minister, and he left these matters entirely to other ministers until some event suddenly drove him to intervene with devastating effect. Even then his policy was the outcome of private reflection, uninfluenced by others. Discussion always brought on a nervous crisis, which ended in tears or the breaking of China, and he preferred to do all his work on paper. How fortunate it was that Bismarck didn't have to reckon with his rivals. This is where Prussia differentiates from the United Kingdom, in that the Prussian cabinet, or council of ministers as it was also called, wasn't a cabinet in the traditional sense. It wasn't made up from deputies of the largest party. And the parliament where Bismarck would have sat wasn't arranged like a parliament in London, in Westminster for instance, which was designed to hold men to account. The only person who could hold Bismarck to account was the king, since the king was the only person capable of appointing a cabinet, and when he appointed that cabinet, he could fill it with people that he wanted to. They didn't even have to be from the largest party in the Landtag. The other side of this, of course, was that the king wouldn't be able to get very much legislation passed if he created a ministry that was composed of people who weren't exactly in favour in the parliament. At the moment, as we know, only 11 out of 352 of those seats were filled by the king's ministers. This meant that in the reactionary government that the king had engineered and created, the liberals would oppose it at every turn. Would there be much opportunities within this opposition to get a lot of things done? Probably not, but this was where Bismarck was supposed to change things. As we said, the only person who could hold Bismarck to account was the king, and this meant that the king was the only person that Bismarck needed to answer to. With everyone else, especially those on the opposite side of the ideological fence, Bismarck would be cold and he would be ruthless, and he would allow nobody to get into his way. He had waited on the sidelines for a decade, and will remember that while he had waited there, his views were ignored and criticised heavily. Bismarck was now determined to make up for lost time then. He would run roughshod over his peers and rivals alike in the name of fulfilling the vision which he had always imagined himself realising, and which he had always believed to be the correct vision for Prussia's future. As AJP Taylor continued... Bismarck did not take part in parliamentary debates, as is understood in England or France. The Prussian ministers were not members of the chamber. They sat aloof on the ministerial bench, and Bismarck delivered his Olympian speeches without any contact with the members. He stated his policy. He did not try to argue or to convince. The effect was increased by his thin, high voice, like a professor lecturing his class. Though he admitted the right of members to question him, he refused to listen to their criticism and withdrew ostentatiously to his own room when the debate turned against him. 
With this dictatorial, unrelenting hold on power, Bismarck ensured that no challengers emerged for the next three decades. Any opposition he ruthlessly destroyed in the Landtag by isolating those members who failed to agree with him and undermining their position towards the king. We have to emphasise that the Landtag was never intended to be more powerful than the king. According to the 1848 constitution, the king was supposed to take advice from the Landtag where desired, and he was to form a cabinet government from among its members if he wanted to, but for all intents and purposes, the Landtag would have a loud bark but no real bite. Bismarck's ability to read to the actual letter of the constitution in this regard, to give the Landtag its minimal amount of powers and rights, and to emphasise as much as he could the untrammeled power of minister-president as a position, dependent upon only the king and no one else, leads us to another question which discussions on Bismarck's legacy often bring up. This is because Bismarck's legacy and his impact on the beginnings of what seem like Prussian democracy here are striking indeed. It wasn't just that Bismarck neutered and sidelined the land tag for the duration of his tenure in office, that being until 1890. It was also the fact that this land tag grew accustomed to its small powers, slotting obediently into the little space which Bismarck allowed for it. The result of this slotting, for lack of a better term, was that by the time Bismarck left the scene in 1890, not only was there no real suitable candidates to directly succeed him, but there was also no true record in Prussia of recent parliamentary opposition. There was no record to build on, which meant that those deputies after Bismarck would have to start from scratch, pretty much. And rather than doing this, Bismarck's successors essentially followed his lead. They would reduce the land tag in the process to little more than a debating house for first Prussian and then German functionaries. This was how Bismarck wanted things, because it made his personal rule easier, but as is often the case, a man who monopolises power at the top for himself is just like any other sovereign or individual, only able to hold on for so long. Bismarck never seems to have reckoned with his own mortality, at least insofar as considering the need for a successor was concerned. Not only did Bismarck fail to appoint any kind of successor or groom anyone for the position when he would leave, he also failed to really think about his monopoly on power and the impact that this would have on that cabal of Germans which would have to take over from him. Since they had no chance to learn, no chance to thrive, no chance to grow in a state with burgeoning democratic traditions, what were these Prussians supposed to do once Bismarck left the scene and left a power vacuum in his wake? This is a criticism which people often level at Bismarck, that by his rule, by his monopoly on power, by his resistance to any kind of opposition, Prussian democracy was effectively smothered in its cradle, and any opportunities for new political forces to develop and come to the fore were denied. And this was true even when the Kingdom of Prussia became the German Empire, and the Prussian Landtag became the German Reichstag. Even with the political sentiments of all Germany seated before him, Bismarck in the Reichstag still behaved in the 1870s and 80s as he had done in the 1860s. He acted as though there were no limits on his power or ability to act, save those which the king, or then the German emperor, chose to impose. It should also be added to this that Bismarck's master during his final years in power, Wilhelm II, had absolutely no interest in relinquishing power to more civilians either. Much like his father and his grandfather, Wilhelm II knew full well that he could coast along on the progress of his late predecessors without really having to give up very much. 
Bismarck's dominance at the height of the Prussian political system was a fact which Bismarck himself relished. He lamented those occasions where he had to stand up and represent Prussia and instruct his subordinates, or, after 1862, when he had to explain himself to anyone in the parliament. A year after his rise, for instance, we see him writing to his friend, Jonathan Lothrop Motley, about the scenes that he was forced to face. Here in the Landtag, Bismarck wrote, while I am writing to you, I have to listen to uncommonly foolish speeches delivered by uncommonly childish and excited politicians, and this gives me a few moments of involuntary leisure. These chatterboxes cannot really rule Prussia. They are fairly clever in a way, have a smattering of knowledge, are typical products of German university education. They know as little about politics as we knew in our student days. No, less. As far as foreign politics are concerned, they are, taken individually, children. In other matters, they become children as soon as they meet together. Edward Crankshaw notes, after this extract here, that it didn't seem to occur to Bismarck that it was his responsibility to bring these children out and lead them to a better understanding of how politics worked. Instead, Crankshaw writes, Bismarck used these inexperienced Prussian delegates. He deceived them, and then he crushed them. Like a captain who arrives from obscurity to pilot an enormously powerful ship, Wilhelm II found that he had a plethora of ideas, but no idea on how to fulfil them. Bismarck had gathered all the ideas for himself. He left his successors with only a vague theory of how to run this Prussian-German monster empire, which he had balanced so majestically. For this reason, one of the most famous caricatures of Bismarck's dismissal in 1890 was a cartoon, captioned as Dropping the Pilot. Evidently, Bismarck's contemporaries saw that with the pilot gone, the German ship might struggle against the currents, or worse, blunder aimlessly into storm after storm. It took a personality like Bismarck to make a success out of the strange Prussian political situation. And it was strange. The Prussian political system was like a kind of hybrid between the absolutism of Russia and the constitutional democracy of Britain. But that was how the Prussians liked it, or at least that was how they saw it going until further reforms were made and Prussia went all the way and became a constitutional monarchy. For those figures, mostly liberals, who imagined Prussia going this way in the early 1860s, they would have been utterly horrified to have seen what it became. For Prussia didn't go the British way. It didn't even go the French way. Instead, it went more the Russian way. It became more absolutist, more reactionary, and less democratic. We can't blame all of this on Bismarck, but certainly he had a very important role to play in making this all happen. From the beginning, Bismarck knew that the king would be central to his staying in power, and this explains why Bismarck was so nervous for the future and so eager to get on with things. After all, let's not forget, King Wilhelm was in his 60s in 1862, and once he passed on, his liberal son Frederick and Frederick's wife Victoria Jr. would be next in line, and that couple would be less than likely to tolerate Bismarck's eclectic mix. This mix was pinpointed by Edward Crankshaw, who noted that Bismarck's force of personality at this time must have been considerable. He wrote, how tremendous, then, must have been the power of Bismarck's personality, a combination of personal magnetism, charm, menace, rudeness, arrogance, irony, delicacy, brutality, humour, deceitfulness and openness, of gentle candour and deepest dyed cynicism, 
Only with these characteristics could Bismarck overcome his isolation and convince the world that he did not make mistakes. These qualities were underpinned, of course, by the one quality which all dictators, all the so-called great men in history, have held in common. The gambler's recklessness. The conjunction of passionate boldness and ice-cold calculation in the heat of action. It seems altogether too much that a man of such remarkable qualities should also be good, humane, far-seeing and wise. Such a man, indeed, must be a god. Bismarck could look wiser than anyone in the world. He could appear far-seeing. There were moments when he managed to appear good, but he was none of these things. Critiques like these from Crankshaw might make you second-guess why I even like Bismarck in the first place. Indeed, Edward Crankshaw's biography is known as the most critical of Bismarck, but at least extracts like these make you think. Bismarck wasn't a great man, but I would never have called him a great man. I would call him formidable, remarkable, terrifying, even. He was the only person capable of doing what he did. No one else could have done what Bismarck did, and that is what I find so alluring about him, so fascinating, because so many questions remain unanswered about Bismarck and his character. The most significant and most important, of course, being why he did this in the first place. We might marvel at his exploits, we might marvel at his legacy, but there was a very valid question which increasingly became pushed to the side as Bismarck did his thing. Was all of this even necessary? Was the unification of Germany, was the extinction of several minor German dynasties, was the conquering of Hanover, Saxony, Bavaria, Austria, was all of that necessary? Were all of the lives that were lost required for Germany to become Germany? Furthermore, we could ask this as well, was German unification even desirable? Those that would say that it was not would argue that Germany as a state was too big, too strong and too fundamentally dangerous to the balance of power to exist at all. The German nation was unlike the Italian nation or the French nation or the Spanish nation or the British nation. It was too big in many ways. These Germans were spread out across the world. They were spread into Eastern Europe, into the Baltic, into South Central Europe. And a common German sense of identity, a common Nordic idea, existed in Scandinavia, in the Netherlands, and in other parts of Europe as well, which the Nazis would later exploit. It's far too easy to blame Bismarck for everything that transpired. It's far too easy to blame him for the outbreak of the First World War, and then the Second World War, which some people have done. I think that goes too far, but I do see their points. It's hard to look at Bismarck, if you're being objective, and think that all of this was worth it. It certainly makes for a fascinating story of one man's war against the status quo. But as is often the case with the status quo, there is a reason that it exists in the first place, and often war was not the only way to change it. We'll look at the fact in the future that attempts were made to unify Germany peacefully. We already know that Bismarck was tipped for success by the National Union, a group of Germans who were concerned with the idea that Germany should unify, and that it should unify under Prussian direction, but not through war. Many German liberals, or liberal nationalists as they would have called themselves, would have been horrified by the idea that in order for Germany to unite, the German states would have to fight amongst themselves first. That would have removed the whole point of it all. If Germans had to fight to get together, then they shouldn't be getting together at all. 
unless they could see a way towards unification without war, unless they could see an arranged method of gathering all the Germanies together in some manner, with some federal union, some assembly, and then some leader to rule it all, there was no point. War was the last thing many liberals wanted, yet by the time Bismarck was finished, it would have seemed as though war was the only way. It would have seemed as though all of this was inevitable, and it would have seemed as though at the top of it all, Bismarck was the only person who knew not just how to build this ship, but also how to steer it. Once he was gone, so too would be the dynamism, the innovation, the skill, and the achievement of German foreign policy. As someone who loathes war, it's very hard for me to reconcile these feelings with my genuine admiration for a character like Bismarck. The reason why I admire him isn't because of the people he killed, or the people he ruined, or the people that he disappointed. Because Bismarck did crush a great number of dreams on his way to the top. Many of those victims of his we can look at as weak, or as people who were always bound to fail. But they didn't account for someone like Bismarck coming along and changing the narrative. We're going to move on from this discussion of Bismarck's legacy. We'll probably come back to it in the grand narrative of things in the future. But I want to talk about his character too. Such a coarse, such a severe, such an intimidating man. Surely he was hard to like. This was true, but he also had a seriously underrated ability when it came time to charm. Oh boy, could Bismarck turn on the charm. He could turn it on at a moment's notice, even when the last thing he wanted to do was engage in petty pleasantries. Bismarck was good at charming. He was good at reading people, he was good at politicking, and he was good at understanding what those people wanted. He could see the weaknesses and their strengths after just a short period of getting to know them. The thing was, though, he used these traits. He used their weaknesses and their strengths against them. Just as he could warmly invite them to dinner, wine and dine them till dawn, and fill their head with all manner of flatteries, he could also utterly destroy them. And he would do it ruthlessly, coldly, if he believed it would get him to where he needed to go. Bismarck was a great conversationalist. And I really identify with the following extract from A.G.P. Taylor, who I believe, even though he wrote his biography of Bismarck 60 or so years ago, does the best job at getting to grips with Bismarck's character. Steinberg is a close second, but Taylor, perhaps for the nostalgic value, really cinches it for me. In any case, Taylor noted, Bismarck bewitched Alexander II, Napoleon III and Queen Victoria, all of whom had started out with strong prejudice against him. He had been trained as a courtier in his youth, and those who met him in old age were astonished to find under Bismarck's rough exterior all the formal grace of a Talleyrand or a Metternich. Foreign statesmen and German radicals alike succumbed to his magic. He would catch a politician in the corridor of the Parliament House, or casually in a railway carriage, and talk to him as though they were the most intimate friends in the world. Of all the great public figures of the past, he is the one who it would be the most rewarding to recall from the dead for an hour's conversation. With all his brusqueness, no man was more skillful at evading a storm. Obviously, if I was to invent one of those dinner parties, you know you've probably talked about them before with your friends if you're nerdy enough. If you could resurrect anyone from the dead and have them as a dinner guest, who would you have? I think Bismarck would always be on my list no matter what, because the man could talk as the expression goes in Ireland, he could talk for Ireland, but he could talk for Germany as well, of course. It would just be fascinating to hear someone like him, who always, at least on the surface, seemed to be one step ahead of the curve.
Bismarck could put aside his personal feelings for the sake of ambition, and this placed him above many of his contemporaries. Although we could wish that he displayed a little more kindness or decency in his relations with others, Bismarck never apologised about who he was, and he never pretended to be someone he wasn't either. He was always focused on the end goal, and this end goal remained the betterment of Prussia, and the, oh, I don't know, the increase of my personal powers along the way, if you don't mind too. It was necessary, of course, because without a strong person at the helm, Prussia couldn't be strong herself. But it was certainly a nice coincidence that while Prussia gained in power, Bismarck did too. We must understand this about Bismarck from the beginning, because it makes his behaviour, especially towards the king, that much easier to understand. We have said that he depended on the king, and not the parliament for his position, but it should be emphasised that Bismarck also needed the king to be dependent upon him. So long as the king believed that only Bismarck could solve the current crisis, Wilhelm would be forced to keep Bismarck on, so he believed. Edward Crankshaw makes the very valid point that unlike other dictators, Bismarck lacked any recognisable power base. Bismarck, Crankshaw wrote, had nobody but the king, the elderly monarch who distrusted him and feared him, but found him temporarily indispensable. Bismarck succeeded by persuading, cajoling, frightening, bamboozling the king into believing that he was permanently indispensable. If, however, Bismarck failed to make the king see that he was so dispensable, or more interestingly and on the other side of the dilemma, if he solved the king's problem of the military reform bill instantly, then what need would Wilhelm have of this radical, provocative, self-assured Junker minister? Surely there was loads of men like Bismarck, who, once the crisis was out of the way, could be appointed as minister-president and not give Wilhelm any kind of bother. Surely someone would step up to the plate in Prussia once this crisis between Crown and Parliament wasn't so acute. This need to keep the king reliant on him moved Bismarck to behave a bit strangely during the course of the confrontation with Parliament. Sometimes Bismarck would be seen making a big song and dance about being unable to compromise the king's honour for the sake of mere civilians, when the real reason he had torpedoed a potential compromise deal was because he knew that if this compromise deal solved the crisis between Crown and Parliament, then the need for a man like Bismarck would pass as well. Essentially, Bismarck had to justify his position to Wilhelm, and what better way to do that than to appear as though you're always one step ahead? If he could only balance domestic affairs and drag out the crisis as long as possible, then Bismarck could effectively have a free hand in foreign policy and be in a position to pursue the ends that he wanted to achieve. In autumn 1862, these ends were not fully fleshed out, but they amounted to a mission to overcome and undermine Austria in some form or another. What Bismarck knew at this early stage was that he had finally made it, and now he had a chance to put into practice what he had been preaching to all who would listen for years. First though, Wilhelm had to be brought in to see things from Bismarck's perspective, or at least not to see Bismarck as the bull in the china shop which Bismarck's critics claimed that he was. This is all to say that from the moment Bismarck acquired power, he was on trial. In spite of opposition from family and friends and from all the liberals, the king had appointed Bismarck because he believed he had no other option. Now it was the moment of truth though. Was Bismarck as capable as he had always claimed to be? And would he be the fixer for Wilhelm's problems? Or would he just prove a flash in the pan and be as much of a failure as his rivals suspected? On the one hand, Bismarck now had all the power he could want in his hands, but on the other, he was now wholly exposed. There was no safety net, 
and there could be no more excuses if things went wrong, because he was responsible. He was responsible, but would he be successful? Wilhelm had taken a risk on Bismarck, as had his friends, but now all depended on Bismarck to live up to his own hype as the king's fixer, or at the very least, the king's firm ally. How was all this to turn out? Next time, we're going to find out, because in the next episode, we're going to see how Bismarck dealt with his first serious test. A test, and a crisis, which Bismarck himself created, and which loomed into view virtually as soon as he made his first speech in the Landtag on blood and iron. I hope you'll join me then, history friends and patrons and PhD pals. But until next time, or right now if you've downloaded them all at once because you're a lovely patron, I'm going to take my leave. My name is Zach, and this has been episode 5 of our Bismarck series. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 